Well, how many of you are drawn to the greatness of perhaps certain athletes, uh, certain musicians, certain events? How many of you ever had tickets to a big game, right? Or a big event? How many of you ever had a son or a daughter or yourself have wanted to spend hundreds of dollars to be in the front row of some concert? We are drawn to greatness. We're a culture that puts greatness on the cover of Time magazine, on the cover of Sports Illustrated, whatever it might be. We celebrate the top athletes. We pay big bucks to see the top musicians. Take a minute, actually, if you would, just with the person sitting next to you, Who's the biggest athlete or musician that you follow? Go ahead and share that actually with someone just right now. Who's, who's your number one person that you're into right now? How many of you followed the World Cup a little bit, right? Maybe, maybe all of a sudden you have the name of some soccer player that you didn't know like two or three weeks ago. My kids have uh, fa- uh, fallen in love with the sport of soccer because of these past few weeks. Most of us celebrate greatness in some form, even if we don't follow the sport. We know who the great athletes are. If you go to the United Center, right, there's a statue of Michael Jordan out there. You know, he's one of the greats, right, of basketball, But what happens culturally as well, right? Greatness is often fleeting. The athlete gets injured, they get traded. Maybe the jersey we used to have that held their name kind of gets shoved in the back of the closet or sold at a garage sale. Some of us have experienced greatness outside of a sports arena. We've experienced it maybe when we've gone on vacation, right? This is summer vacation season for a lot of folks. Now, how many of you have ever stood at the shore of Lake Michigan or the ocean in Florida, California, wherever, and watched the sunset and thought, that's awesome, right? Beauty, majesty, splendor. Maybe you've hiked, you've summited some mountain somewhere, and you've taken in the breath of the landscape, and you've said to yourself, that's great. I want to move here. How many of you have ever said that, right? And you say to yourself, I'm going to remember this. I'm going to remember what this feels like, this moment of greatness, this moment of maybe a little bit of holiness, right? Of God that crept in. And then you come back and someone says, how was the vacation? You're like, it was great. You should have seen the sunset or the summit. And then a week later, you're buried in meetings and homework and traffic on the Eisenhower's a nightmare. And you just sort of forget, right? How great that moment was. Greatness, as we experience it in our culture and as human beings, is fleeting. Here's the great news, friends. The greatness of God never fades, never diminishes, never lessens. We miss it at times, and maybe we can't always entirely take it in, and things get cloudy, and things get in our way of fully understanding it, but God is great. And the psalm we have for this morning is a song from King David. The word psalm is just a fancy Hebrew word for praise, and the psalms, they're a book of songs, And King David is one of the greatest kings of history. We're still talking about him today. The Jewish community still celebrates him. He was known as a man of God. We're told he was after a man after God's heart. At this time, he has all of Israel under his command. He's taken over and um, conquered the city of Jerusalem. 
And he is at the time what is considered great. And he has at his disposal all the power that comes with being a king. Now, if you read anything else about David, you'll also know David messed things up pretty good. He had a little bit of an affair and had a man killed to cover it up. He lied. He cheated. His family is dysfunction junction. And yet he still is great. Why? Over and over, time and time again, when you read the songs of David, he comes back to God with the broken pieces of his life and the mess that he's made, and he lays them at God's feet, and he proclaims God's greatness again and again. And he's humble enough to realize that everything that he ever did that was good and noble and trustworthy and honest in his life came because God gave him the power to do so. So this psalm in its entirety, which clearly we didn't read the entire thing, but if you have your copy of scriptures with you, you want to pull it up on your smartphone or whatever, Psalm 145, when we look at the first two verses of this psalm, which weren't included in our text for today, verses one and two, this is what David says. He says, I will exalt you, my God and King, praise your name forever and ever. I will praise you every day. Yes, I will praise you forever. Which when I first see that, I think, great, David's all fired up. And then I realize that applies to us too. And I start to think to myself, I confess, how in the world could I praise God's name forever? Like, every day, nonstop? Doesn't that get a little boring? Like, do I have that much to say to God? That refrain, amazing, in amazing grace, right? When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun. Say it with me. We've no less days to sing God's praise than when we'd first begun. No less days. We're going to praise God forever. I'm going to confess, I have no idea what that would be like. Because there are times where I'm like, God, I didn't get what I wanted. Things are a little hard right now. And I'm going to confess, the last thing I feel like doing is praising your name, right? This psalm brings us to a place of remembering how worthy God is of our praise in the good and the bad, in the hard in the honest, in the humble, in the moments of life where we realize we've reached the end of ourselves and it's only God that can take us further. So a couple quick thoughts on God's greatness. We're told we're going to praise God constantly, that life is about praising God. The musician David Crowder calls it a praise habit. It's what we do for God But what does God's greatness look like, right? I mean, it's easy to sit in church and go, God is great, right? Because that's what church people are supposed to say. But what happens in our real lives? How does that greatness of God actually manifest itself in our lives? When you leave here today and you hop in your car and you go on to the next last barbecue of the weekend, like what what does that look like, right? When you wake up tomorrow morning, what does that feel like to realize that God is great and he's calling for our praises, And C.S. Lewis, how many of you have ever read the Chronicles of Narnia, right? A lot of folks have read that. Um, Lucy, right, she's the the hero of the story, and she befriends and meets the majestic lion Aslan, right? Aslan is is God. He's the personification of God in the the Lewis Chronicles. And there's a a point in the story where, where Lucy, they leave Narnia. They leave the magic land where Aslan is. And eventually, about a year later, they go back and they return to Narnia. And Lucy reconnects with the lion, 
Aslan, and they have this little conversation. Lewis writes, the great beast rolled over on his side and Lucy fell half sitting on his front paws. He bent forward and touched her nose. His warm breath enveloped her and she gazed into his large, wise face. He said, welcome, child. Aslan, said Lucy, you're bigger. That's because you're older, little one, answered he. Not because you are? I'm not. But each year you grow, you'll find me bigger. Each year you grow, you will find me bigger. Every time we grow in something, God gets greater and God gets bigger. Notice in this psalm, if you're looking at the rest of the text, in verses 4 and 5, we're told that the praises of God go from generation to generation. And yes, there's a part of that where what we've learned that perhaps some of us are older pass on to the younger But there's also part of it that says the more life you've lived, the greater God gets. There are eight-year-olds who've lived more life than some 80-year-olds. And there are 15-year-olds who've lived more life than some 35-year-olds. And the more life you've lived, the greater God gets. And that doesn't mean that the more fun you've had and the more it's gone your way, the greater God gets. The harder you've had it, If you stop for a few seconds and think about it, the greater God gets. I can tell you that for truth in my life. I have been in hospital rooms. I have stood at gravesides of people in their 30s with children who were never meant to pass from this life at the time that they did. And there are two responses, right? Sometimes we do both at one and the same time. You shake your fist to heaven. You're like, really? Really, God? Why do bad things happen to good people, right? And when we stop and we process it and we think, of the breath of God, and we think of the full story and the fact that God comes to redeem every one of those broken, hurt places at the end of time. And that now, as Paul says, we only see thinly, dimly what we'll see in full eventually. We realize God is great. How many people do you know who have walked through tragedy and have come out the other end to praise the Lord with words they never had before they entered the darkness? The more life we've lived, the greater God gets. This is the story of David. I mean, read, read the Old Testament. Read David. That guy was a mess. He was on his knees constantly. He screwed just about everything up. And Psalm 145 is one of the last songs that he wrote. It's the last one authored by him in the actual book of Psalms. And this is what he's able to say at the end of his broken, pain-filled life. How great God is. Second thing I want us to note is that God's greatness is generous. Verses 8 to 14, what we studied today, what does that tell us about God? God's greatness isn't just for God's sake, right? You know, we have the story of the Pharaoh of Egypt, the Israelite story that brought the Israelites, God brought the Israelites out of the desert and the Pharaoh used them, right? He enslaved them to make his own name great. He beat people and he killed people and he took people to the edge of their lives so that he could make his own name great. God, let's be clear, is is great. If God never does anything, God is just simply great. That's the essence of who God is. But God's greatness is generous. God's greatness exists for a purpose. What are we told here? God's God's greatness is compassionate, generous, slow to anger, abounding in love. 
You know, Jonathan Edwards, that famous New England preacher said, you know, titled a sermon, one of his most famous sermons, that were sinners in the hands of an angry God. The point of Edwards' sermon isn't that God squishes us in his hand. It's that God could do that and chooses not to. God's greatness is compassionate. God's greatness brought Jesus to the cross so that we could live full and beautiful lives. God's greatness is generous, and this psalm tells us how. And lastly, God's greatness is couched in love for the world. Verse 14, right? He helps those who are falling bear their burdens. There's actually 21 verses in this psalm, and from 15 to 21, we're told all the good that God does to bring justice and hope and healing and peace to the world. And yes, there are times we do not get to see it this side of heaven, but the end game of humanity is God making all things right. This is the greatness and the glory of God. There's an app you can look up on the app store if you want. You can check it out right now. I won't assume you're texting your friends or something like that. It's called the Pocket God app. Here's the description of the Pocket God app. If you were God, what kind of God would you be? Benevolent or vengeful? Play Pocket God and discover the answer within yourself. On a remote island, you are the all-powerful God that rules over the primitive islanders. You can bring new life and then take it away just as quickly. Sounds a lot like Lord of the Flies to me, right? This is like what our own opinion of God can be if we like turn it into an app, right? Or our culture, right? God must be vengeful. God must be ready to squish us in his hand. Hard things happen. How great is a God that just does whatever God wants, right? These are the sorts of thoughts we harbor about God. This is sort of the world we operate in, and we often don't think of God as generous, as gracious, as slow to anger, or getting greater as our lives go on. Sometimes we try to domesticate God. God, if you could just act like I want you to, I can put you in this little square and stick you on my phone and I'm gonna press the button for you when I need you. And your greatness will then reside in my little device in the way that I wanna manipulate you and, and slide you into my favorites or whatever, right? We cannot limit God to what we think God might be like were we him. God's greatness comes out around us, whether we want it to or not. It comes crashing in through tragedy. It comes through the table. It comes through people. It comes through the life of a newborn baby. God's greatness comes all around us. And the writers of scripture themselves, it's so fascinating. They hardly understood it. If you go through scripture, you know, I don't know about you, but I used to have this myth in my mind that like the answer to everything was in the Bible, the guide for life <laughs> and the answer to salvation and love is in the Bible, but it turns out God didn't actually turn it into a science manual. I don't know exactly how the world began. I know God did it. I don't still know why tragedy happens and why some people live longer than others. I don't, the answer to everything isn't in there. And the scripture writers themselves knew this. In Proverbs 30, this is what the writer of Proverbs says. There are three things that amaze me. No, four things, he says, I don't understand. He says, how an eagle glides through the sky, how a snake slithers on a rock, how a ship navigates the ocean, 
and how a man loves a woman. Psalm 139, when we're told about how we were knit together in the womb, the writer says, such knowledge is too wonderful to me. It's just too great. I don't even understand. Psalm 131, Lord, my heart is not proud. My eyes are not haughty. I don't concern myself with matters too great or too awesome. Your awesomeness, God, too great for me to grasp. And Paul in Ephesians, when he says his, his, his words about all that he believes and loves and knows to be true about Jesus Christ, and he says, when I think of all this, I fall to my knees and I pray to the Father, the creator of everything in heaven and earth. And I pray that from his glorious unlimited resources, he will empower you with inner strength. And then he goes on and on and on. And at the end of that passage, he says, now all glory to God who is able through his mighty power at work within us to accomplish it infinitely more than we can ask or even think. God who will do more with his greatness than we can even think. That's the God we worship. That's the greatness we try to take in. My daughter Lily was falling asleep the other night. My husband and I were tucking her in. And right before she fell asleep, she says, Mom, I have two questions. And usually the questions have something to do with, you know, where she misplaced something or can she go get a snack before bed. She goes, who created God? And how did God create the world? And my husband laughed and he patted me on the back. He goes, Reverend, this one's yours. And I was like, well, baby doll, you know, and I like troll through all my like pad answers that I have like from seminary or something like that. And I'm, I'm talking to a six-year-old. And you know, at the end of the day, I have no idea who created God. God always was. And I just looked at her and I said, little bug, that's what I call her. I said, little bug, I don't know. <laughs> but God is and was and always will be. And sometimes that just has to be enough. She goes, I don't like that answer, <laughs> right? But I mean, this is, this, is, this is our journey, right? This is our journey to finding ourselves in the story of God. You know, God, who are you? And how did I get here? And how did, how did we make a mess of this? And how's it going to get fixed? And, and the story is Jesus. The story is there in scripture, but the nuances are a mystery. You know, R.C. Sproul says that at the end of our lives, when we get to heaven and meet our maker face to face, that at one time that will be the most marvelous and most terrifying moment of our existence because we will finally see God face to face and get to relish and bask and take in all of his greatness. And at the exact same time, it will be so great we can hardly stand it, that we will just realize how small and infinite and puny that we really actually are. But God's greatness is here to move us it's here to inspire us. It's here to comfort us, to soothe us, to put grace around us, and to move us toward the activity of the people of God in this world. And it moves us toward the table as well. You know, communion is an act of remembering. And when we leave here, what a joy it would be if we remembered the greatness of God that we just talked about. You want to know something cool about this psalm that you can't pick up if you're reading it in English? The whole thing's a giant acrostic, which means that in Hebrew, the first line starts with Aleph, the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And the beginning of each stanza all the way through is, is a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet so that they could remember it. All the way down, 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. They're actually missing one letter. We're not sure what happened there. But that's why there's 21 verses in that song. 
right? It's so that we remember the reason we did, they did that wasn't just, oh, let's be cute and do this. It was because it was an oral culture and the cadence and the rhythm of it and the letters of the alphabet helped them remember. When we get to the table of the Lord, what does Jesus say about communion? Do this in remembrance of me, right? Remember the greatness of my act of mercy and salvation on your behalf. Remember that never before and never since has someone died, been resurrected to bring us all eternal life the way that Jesus Christ did. Coming to the table is the community's way of remembering the greatness of God, the praises of God. And we can be honest as we come to the table. If we feel stuck, if we have a hard spot, we can bring that to God. You can pray that through before you come to the table. But this is one of the things that we do, is remember the goodness of God. And how great, right, is a God that took the utterly ordinary and made it divine and holy. I mean, bread and wine, grape juice for us, right? I mean, these have been the staples that people have gathered around the table for, for most of human history. And God chose the ordinary to make us remember his greatness. And in the same way, he takes every single one of our lives. And at the moments where we struggle and the moments where we celebrate, he reminds us through song and through psalms that he's got great things for us. His greatness surrounds us. And if we allow him, he'll do great things through us. Amen? So I'm going to pray for us, and Eric's going to come on up, and we're going to remember the greatness of God together as we come around the table. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much that you are great, that you wrap us in your love, that you surround us with your greatness, that it's there for us whether we're willing to receive it, see it, acknowledge it or not. Lord, help us remember that. Let us take the stories of your greatness with us and let us now as we come to the table remember all there is to remember about your love and your majesty and your mercy and your greatness. Amen.